question, what kind of cities do we want to live in? How do we want our cities to be? Cannot be divorced from the question of what kind of people we want to be. What kind of humanity we wish to create amongst ourselves and how we want to create it. And it is that mutual constitution of the city and who we are and what we are that is something which is, I think, again, very important to reflect upon. This is The City, an hour dedicated to a critical discussion of urban issues. Welcome to the city. I'm your host, Andy Longhurst, for the next hour broadcasting on CITR 101.9 FM and now syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM from Burnaby Mountain. And I'm very pleased to be with you and very happy and excited uh, to present and bring you this show. On the show today, uh, we'll be making visits to Moscow, Gaza, and then back to Vancouver to hear about pro-democracy protests, housing struggles, the living wage movement, and indigenous struggles to protect sacred land that and more on today's uh, program, so stay with us. And first we go to Free Speech Radio News for coverage from Sunday's um, uh, protests against uh, Vladimir Putin's, uh, the beginning of his third term um, as president. And uh, we're going to go to that clip right now. In Moscow today, Vladimir Putin took the oath of office to begin a third term as president as authorities made arrests of protesters for a second day and police cracked down on dissent throughout the capital. On Sunday, protesters clashed with police, leading to hundreds of arrests. FSRN's Yekaterina Danilova reports. In his inauguration speech, Vladimir Putin encouraged people to support his goals for the country. We are now entering a new stage in our national development that requires us to resolve tasks at a principally new level, tasks of a different quality and scale. These coming years will be crucial for shaping Russia's future in the decades to come. We must all understand that the life of our future generations and our prospects as a country and nation depend on us today. The inauguration ceremony was carried live on six television channels and coverage of the event dominated the airwaves throughout the day. But outside the Kremlin, police cracked down on dissenters. More than 100 people were arrested in Moscow and St. Petersburg on Monday for wearing white ribbons, a symbol of the anti-Putin movement or for saying anti-Putin slogans. On Sunday, more than 600 people were arrested at the site of a permitted rally in the center of Moscow. Activists confronted police who responded with force in the first violent confrontation between protesters and the state since anti-Putin protests began last December. Andrei Pivovarov is an opposition leader from St. Petersburg who attended the Moscow rally. 
The beating of people started, and the elderly people went to one side, and younger people went ahead, forming a chain. The police pounced on them, and people resisted. Russian officials later said that police acted softly, and Putin's spokesperson said he wished they had been more aggressive. Dozens of demonstrators and police were wounded during the clashes. Now government prosecutors say they will seek charges against opposition leaders for inciting violence, a charge that carries up to 10 years in jail. Pivovarov said it was the police who provoked violence. They can blame people for aggressiveness because they were throwing stones. But on the whole, we should understand that when a company of armed soldiers attack the crowd, it is an attack on the citizens of Russia. In St. Petersburg on Sunday, several activists led one-person demonstrations, a strategy that has so far avoided arrest by police. A young woman who gave her name as only Irina stood in the central square that is a popular place for political actions. She had red tape over her mouth and held a sign saying, where is freedom of speech? I think that we need to wake up the consciousness of the people, because the majority of people here, as sad as it is, are absolutely misinformed, because of censorship, because our central channels boldly lie. They don't tell the truth, so we need to reach out to the people. Another protester was Elena Osipova, an elderly woman who has attended many of the demonstrations against Putin. She said Putin should be held accountable for tragedies such as the Beslan School massacre, where more than 100 children were killed. I think that it's a shame for Russia. This person who didn't answer for any of his faults, more exactly to say crimes, and he will become president again, and it seems for a very long time. Unfortunately, the people are passive again. They woke up in the winter, but are now passive again. People don't have hopes anymore, so I don't know what will happen. Some who oppose Putin are critical of the opposition. They say it has no plan. Another activist who gave her name only as Elizabeth was holding a sign. Everyone had the right to choose. The opposition has no leader. Now it's senseless, actually, because the leader won't appear because everybody tries to burst ahead and there is no leader at all. I myself see the way out only in revolution. There must be harsh actions. But the opposition says the protests this weekend that attracted more than 50,000 people in Moscow alone show the movement is strong and will continue. Again, Pivovarov. There were people, and this for sure shows that nothing is ending. It is very convenient to say that protests have gone away, but the people haven't gone anywhere. And now is a very important moment where the 100,000 people who went out in December just to stand, and now these people are transforming into activists. Police continued to arrest protesters on Monday. More demonstrations are planned during the holiday in Russia on Tuesday and Wednesday. Yekaterina Danilova, FSRN, Russia. And thanks to Free Speech Radio News for uh, bringing us coverage from Moscow and uh, what's going on in the streets um, and in the minds of uh, many in Moscow and in Russia. So now we're going to turn to Gaza and... uh, 
hear about some of the struggles uh, for housing. Um, more housing has been built um, for those in the occupied territories. And uh, for that, we're going to hear um, about uh, what has been done uh, to alleviate some of the housing stresses um, that many face in the in the region um, and uh, what still needs to be done uh, to provide more um, housing and adequate housing uh, for those living there. In Gaza, more than 200 families have moved into new homes built with the help of the UN Relief and Works Agency and funded by the Dutch government. But thousands of other residents still await housing following Israeli army attacks that have left families without permanent homes. FSRN's Rami Magari has more. In a newly established residential neighborhood in the southern Gaza Strip city of Khan Yunis, the nine-member Shalul family is busy setting up their new home. The two-story dwelling has a three bedrooms, a living room, and a bathroom on each floor. Lobna Barbach Shalul says they couldn't be happier. Our joy is beyond any description, as we have this new home and no one is forcing us to stay or move. I plan to plant some crops here, like olives, lemons, or apples. The new home comes after eight years of temporary living situations. Their last home in the Khan Yunis refugee camp was destroyed by Israeli army bulldozers in 2004 amidst violence in the region. Sitting in the sunny garden with family and neighbors, 70-year-old Amjawad said she has been waiting a long time to have safe and secure housing. We have rented six different homes in the years after our home was destroyed. Now we are here in this new home and we feel so great and we are so grateful to those who helped ensure we got such a home. In the past we endured a lot of suffering, moving from one rental house to another. The Shalul's new home is one of more than 200 others in this newly completed housing development. Families here had lost homes during Israel's three-week-long attack on Gaza in 2009. But thousands more are still waiting for their own set of keys. Another project in the city of Rafah started last July and should be complete this summer. Funded by the government of Saudi Arabia, this development will rehouse about 1,500 families. 32-year-old father of four, Raed al-Zumur, is one of those waiting for a new home. Raed's family, including his parents and six siblings, have been displaced since 2003 when their two-story home on the Gaza-Egypt border was destroyed by Israeli bulldozers. They have rented six places over the last nine years. So far, my children, who are now in school, do not live in their own home, and they have been scattered along with me. The Saudi project means stability to me. It means I will now have neighbors. Construction on this site began in 2006, and a clinic, three schools, and marketplace were completed. But work on the housing units stopped following Israel's blockade of the coastal territory in 2007, engineer Zohair Abu Nahla is leading construction of the housing project. In a couple of months, I expect that the second phase of the project will commence, and both phases cost a total of about $90 million. The whole area of phase one of the project is about 22 acres of land. 
Two years ago, Israel began easing the blockade, but UNRWA, which runs internationally funded housing projects in Gaza, says more construction materials are still needed in order to complete such projects. Adnan Abu Hasna is a spokesperson for the organization. There is a delay in getting the construction material into Gaza because you have only one crossing point. It is, it is a problem. It is a real problem for Gaza. We need tens of thousands of tons of uh, cement and iron every day. What we have now from the Israeli side, it's not enough for us. But there are improvements. The Israelis, they are allowed nearly uh, about uh, 40 trucks or you know 50 trucks on daily basis. Sometimes it's 20 trucks. Uh, but what we need, we need more than 60 or 50 we are an element of peace and stability. We need help. The, we have a very essential role, whereas, you know, the, the very humanitarian crisis here. According to Abu Hasna, Israel has also allowed entry of building materials for another Japanese-funded housing project that will rebuild more than 250 homes for families in the eight refugee camps. The project has been put on hold for the past six years. Rami al Free Speech Radio News, Gaza. And thanks to Free Speech Radio News for bringing us both of those stories, uh, both from very different parts of the world, um, but reflecting uh, different struggles, um, both uh, urban in nature or uh, articulated um, uh, in an urban landscape from the Moscow protests um, on the streets um, for democracy in, in Russia, which has become increasingly um, anti-democratic and many are critical of uh, Putin and and uh, those that he surrounds himself with. And then to Gaza for, um, for the struggle for housing. Um, and many of us know uh, the struggle for housing is one that we see um, all across the world and, and maybe one of the um, the most unifying struggles um, between uh, people everywhere, both um, in uh, the so-called developed global north or the um, developing, so-called developing global south. So uh, certainly an issue um, that deserves attention and always interesting to hear about those struggles um, as they um, occur and are um, articulated um, in, in different parts of the world. We're going to take a quick break and uh, hear a track um, from Ani DeFranco, um, her new album, Which Side Are You On? Um, a wonderful album, um, recently released, and um, we're going to hear a track called Splinter off of that album. This is CITR 101.9, and we're also broadcasting uh, syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM, uh, CITR from the University of British Columbia um, in, uh, on the Vancouver campus, and CJSF uh, broadcasting from Burnaby Mountain. Stay with us. This is The City. Like we just gotta 
launches online registration for second camp. Ladies of all ages and skill levels will form a band, write a song, and play a show, all in just three days. All instruments, equipment, and food will be provided. The ladies' camp will be run entirely by volunteers. The cost is $350 per camper. For every person who goes to the ladies' rock camp, a girl in need of financial aid will be able to attend girls' rock camp. Camps taking place from May 25th to 27th at the Waldorf Hotel. Registration for campers and volunteers opens Monday, March 12th at ladiesrockcamp.tumblr.com. Artists in our midst welcomes their 20th anniversary by inviting the public to join them for two popular art events this spring. Event 1 is a free roundhouse exhibit and birthday party on May 16th. One day only at the Roundhouse Community Centre at 181 Roundhouse Muse in Yaletown. There will be an artist reception from 7 to 10 p.m. And don't miss out on the birthday cake bash at 8. Following up the birthday bash, there will be a free open studios walk on May 19th through the 21st. Studios will be open from 11 a.m. to 6 p.m. And to see participating artists and a map, visit the website at artistsinourmidst.com. And this is the city on CITR 101.9 FM and CJSF 90.1 FM. And uh, we're get, now going to move into um, some more some local content and coverage. Um, just recently, uh, this past week, um, a development site um, in Marple owned um, by Century Group, um, which is um, proposed to be developed into a condominium uh, complex, um, 
which uh, is, a, is an ancient burial ground for the Musqueam band here in, in Vancouver um, and land that is very significant to them. And uh, we've been following this story and we're going to be providing um, some coverage and an update to the rally um, from last week. So um, for some context on this, um, we're going to go to a short um, uh, background provided by Catherine Fisher from Kootenai Co-op Radio. Um, and this was a piece uh, produced for Groundwire, which is a national uh, radio collaboration um, produced from coast to coast to coast and stations all across this country um, who contribute. So we're going to get a quick uh, background um, succinctly uh, put together um, by Catherine Fisher. On Thursday, May 3rd, more than 100 Musqueam band members and supporters marched down Granville Street in Vancouver, assembling near the Marpole Midden, a stretch of land on South Marine Drive, which used to be one of the Musqueam Nation's most significant winter villages. A five-story commercial and residential development has been proposed for this piece of land. The Musqueam Nation maintains Aboriginal title and rights to the land, although the lot is held in fee simple by the developers. Archaeologists first found intact ancestral remains on the site in late January, and work was stopped in the immediate area where the remains were found, but developers were allowed to continue working in the surrounding lots. They halted work for a few weeks in March following protests and pickets on the site. During this halt, the Musqueam Nation, the property developers, the city of Vancouver, and the province of BC attempted to come to an agreement about what would happen on the midden. Recently, in an open letter, the Musqueam offered to swap land with the private developer for nearby land, but they have not yet received a response from the developers or the provincial government on the proposal. The development work resumed in the area in April. This week, archaeologists turned up intact ancestral remains of two infants and another body. Speaking on behalf of the city of Vancouver, city manager Penny Ballam says they are not permitted to withhold a building permit for archaeological issues and the decision to pull the development permit will lie with the province. The Musqueam have stated their intention to occupy the site and halt development, and Union of BC Indian Chiefs Grand Chief Stuart Phillip announced that the site will remain shut down until the province is prepared to come to the table and discuss a resolution. And thank to, thanks to Catherine Fisher for providing that, and uh, that was prepared for Groundwire. And you can find uh, Groundwire off of the National Campus and Radio Associate Campus and Community Radio Association's website. That's ncra.ca. And uh, now we're going to go to, um, at that um, Thursday uh, rally in March, um, I caught up with Aaron Wilson. And Aaron um, joined um, uh, me on the show and Spencer, um, Lindsay, on the show um, a while back um, when uh, when they were initially um, organizing um, and they initially halted construction and were engaging in discussions with the developer um, as well as the city. Um, and that was also early on with discussions um, with the province. So Aaron uh, joined for a, a quite a in-depth discussion, and I caught up with him at the site, um, and he uh, brought uh, brought me up to speed. Can you provide an update um, of the recent news? There's a few updates to give, um, and a few reasons why we're back here as, as a community to raise awareness about uh, our, our village site and burial ground. The first and most important is that there's been more intact burials discovered, uh, specifically uh, the burials of infants. And this is, uh, as I mentioned before, culturally as a people, it's very important for us to respect our ancestors, to respect our connection to the land, who we are as a people, and particularly when it comes to uh, an infant burial, it's, it's very 
important to us that we respect that and that we uh, protect that, that those, that those ancestors of ours may rest in peace. The other reason we're here today is because uh, we've been in ongoing discussions. Our chief and council have been negotiating with the province and with the developer, and Musqueam is willing and able to provide land and finances to make this, this possible to have a land swap uh, where we would offer some of our own land to have this land back so that we can protect it and respect it. And we've been in these negotiations, but nothing has happened. We need more support from the province. Uh, I think the developers are, uh, would prefer uh, a solution for everyone, and, and we, need, we need support. We need help from the province. We need help from, from the people of BC in our, in our efforts. Where have those discussions gone with the province? My understanding is that there's been a lot of, um, a lot of talk but not enough action. So our concern is that uh, the developer is losing money. Uh, they have an investment in this property and, and they need to have the assurances that if they move, that, uh, that their investment will be protected. And, and Musqueam isn't here to, to uh, stop developers from building condos somewhere else. It's here on our, on our ancestral village site that is the concern for us. Does uh, the Musqueam have um, a possible land swap location um, that the band would be willing to swap with? Or at, the, at this point, it's just a matter of engaging um, in that discussion? I don't know the specific lands that are available, but I know that the band does have lands and a number of properties are out there. It's a matter of the, the province uh, ensuring that the land swap goes smoothly. And uh, what are your thoughts on um, just sort of the escalation of this? And we're seeing that the city and the province, um, while they have shown some indication that they're concerned, um, certainly uh, this is nowhere near resolved. Are you, do you feel frustrated with the process and how things have been occurring? I should say that the city has been helping us. The city has been very helpful in this, but it needs everyone at the party. I would say that we're all very frustrated, and after weeks and weeks of talks and negotiations, um, we're here again today uh, protesting because uh, we will protect this site. This site is sacred to us, and we want to talk. We want to make a deal, but until everyone works together, we will be here to protect this site. And are there any other legal tools that the Musqueam has um, to challenge this? I think it's up to the chief and council to, to decide what they're going to do. Uh, Musqueam wants a consensus. We don't want to, to have to fight over this site. We want to be uh, reasonable people to make an agreement to offer some of our own land and our own investments so that the developer can move on. Uh, I think we want a, a settlement for everyone. And certainly everyone is taking it day by day, but um, Chief Ernie Campbell said Musqueam is willing to be here as long as they have to be. Um, is that your feeling and sense of the issue? 
that's my personal feeling. Yeah. We'll be here as long as we need to be. Yeah. And we'll keep talking too. Yeah. Um, but we're here. Yeah. Okay. Thank you so much, Aaron. You're very welcome. And that was Aaron Wilson, a Musqueam band member and also a UBC law student who um, joined, uh, uh, was a guest earlier uh, several weeks, many weeks back, actually, um, on the city um, when this was initially occurring. And just to note, uh, today, um, as reported by CBC, um, around noon today, um, the Musqueam uh, did halt construction as uh, the developer um uh, what appears to be the, an attempt to restart construction. Um, Musqueam band members came down in uh, larger numbers. They've been um, att- uh, they've been occupying and present at the site on a 24-hour basis. Um, but due to the indication that they were going to res- resume construction, um, more people came down, um, and it sounds like uh, police were, were, were called in, and there's been a cool-off um, that has been negotiated. But uh, quite interesting that even with the presence, uh, the construction, um, they're attempting to, to continue the construction on the site. So we'll be continuing to follow that, uh, that story, and I now uh, very quickly um, want to go to um, some... Uh, some sounds from the rally um, from last Thursday and um, hear from um, one representative uh, speaking, addressing the, the audience. We also have representatives from the First Nation Summit here today supporting our efforts. And I want to call my good friend Dan Smith on the executive of the First Nation Summit to come forward and say, say a few words. To the young, the old, the elders. And on behalf of our my colleagues, Grand Chief Ed John and Chief Doug White and Nemo, they send their regrets for not being here. At this time, they are in New York, fighting for our rights and titles at the United Nations level. So here we are. Are we angry enough? Are we mad enough at the systemic barriers, at the attitudinal barriers? that is being demonstrated by government policies and systems that has affected us in contact, not respecting our indigenous laws, not respecting our young people, our old people, and our ancestors. For everybody to know, we have a cultural connection to our land and our resources. A cultural connection to our land and our resources. What that means is, they are shared, we have shared our cultural connection to our land and the resources with the first comers. We are the first comers. We shared them with our neighbors. We continue to do that. And yet they treat us this way with their system, with their economic initiatives, where money is greater than our culture, our connection. And those cultural connections are demonstrated, are shared through our songs, our dances, and through our young people. And we continue to do that. So the First Nation Summit represents 160 of the First Nations of British Columbia. But you know, we all represent the 203 First Nations of British Columbia, and they are facing the same challenges with the system, with that attitude that is being demonstrated by government and by not coming forward and saying, what is the Heritage Act for in British Columbia and the federal government if they're not there to protect our interests? Their heritage is only 150 years old. Ours is 1,000. So let's get on with it. Let's go. 
And that was uh, hearing from uh, some of the speakers from last week's rally. And again, this is something that is ongoing. And um, uh, Musqueam has uh, asked uh, to uh, to invite people, um, whether Musqueam, Aboriginal or not, to come down and stand in solidarity. And uh, you can uh, follow this um, more on the city in coming weeks. We'll continue to pay very close attention to this issue. Um, but I think um, that speaker made a very, very good point um, that this is unceded Coast Salish territory and that uh, we need to respect that. And something so sacred um, to a culture um, needs to, at a very minimum, um, be uh, be respected and, and not developed um, and treated in a way that is respectful and dignified um, to uh, the, the culture um, that it belongs to. We're going to take a very quick break, and then we're going to go into the second half of the show. And earlier today, I spoke with um, Michael, um, s- excuse me, Michael McCarthy um, Flynn from, uh, f- from First Call, as well as... Um, the Living Wages for Family campaign organizer. Um, and we were discussing the new living wage that came out in April and what this means um, in relation to current, the predominant wages um, within Vancouver and metro area and what it takes um, to avoid um, income insecurity and severe financial strain in the region. So stay with us. This is The City on CITR 101.9 FM, CJSF 90.1, and we'll be back with more. With the vast amount of changes happening in the world, it's almost impossible to get a clear picture of what's really going on. We are trapped within the logic of capitalism, leaving us unable to imagine what comes next. The Extra Environmentalist brings the perspectives of people who can see the whole picture and are ready for whatever comes our way. Tune in to The Extra Environmentalist every Wednesday from 2 to 3 p.m. on CITR 101.9 FM. This is the viewpoint that makes all places the same to you. Have you heard of the newly opened NSCS Discovery Restaurant at 1515 Discovery in Jericho Park? Profits support NS Culinary Education Society of BC. Enjoy breakfast on the beach for only $4.95, served daily from 7 a.m. till 11 p.m. Say you heard this ad and receive 5% off lunch and dinner items until May 31st, 2012. Enjoy breakfast, lunch, or dinner at the newly opened NSCS Discovery Restaurant at 1515 Discovery in Jericho Park and support a local social enterprise. And uh, Flex Your Head is coming up at 6 o'clock. It's uh, just now turning to 5.40. Um, and you're tuned in to CITR 101.9 FM and syndicated on 90.1 CJSF. And we're going to now go to a discussion I had uh, today um, on Tuesday, um, the 8th of May, uh, with Michael McCarthy Flynn, um, who's the Living Wage for Families uh, campaign organizer. And uh, here's our discussion about the Living Wage and the Living Wage movement. Michael, can you tell me about the new numbers that were released this past April um, in regards to what a living wage is uh, in the Lower Mainland? Yes, um, our campaign um, calculates what a living wage is for uh, families in Metro Vancouver every year. So we've recently updated that figure um, based on the most up-to-date data that's available. So the figure is now $19.14 per hour, and that's based on a family of four with two parents working full-time. That is 35 hours a week. Now, what's the increase that we've seen um, since last year? 
Okay, there's been a small increase. Um, I think it's about 30 cents. And the main drivers of the increase are in relation to childcare and shelter and also MSP. All those have increased between 3 and 6%. And if you're able to, can you uh, give us a bit of context um, over a longer period how much uh, a living wage um, has increased over, say, a 5- to 10-year period? Okay, well, we only started calculating in 2008, and in 2008, I think it was 16.54 an hour. Okay. Um, last year it was 18.81, and the year before that it was 18.70. So it's roughly maybe about 60, 50 cents a year it goes up by. Okay. Which is, you know, not that much when we consider uh, what living expenses have been going up for. I think it's a nuance calculation because it doesn't just record expenses that go up it also records expenses that go down so for example this year the transportation budget went down because of the introduction of the uh upass okay and what do you make of the increase um in the minimum wage now up to 1025 um an hour uh still quite a significant discrepancy uh, from what a living wage is based on uh, the calculation um, that that uh, First Call has produced uh, in coordination with the CCPA. Uh, are we going to see uh, the minimum wage more in line? Um, and I guess uh, more broadly, are you optimistic um, uh, that we'll see uh, more significant increases over time? Well, I think... The, the increase in the minimum wage is a welcome first start. Um, it has been starting from a very low base, and um, it hadn't been increased in eight years. Um, however, there's, there's one or two issues I would still have with the minimum wage. One is that the minimum wage is related to nothing. It's not based on any inflationary figures. It's not based on the cost of living or anything like that. And also, in relation to the difference between the living wage and the minimum wage, I think it is a huge gap, and primarily because Vancouver is such an expensive city. But it's not just that, because within BC and wider throughout Canada, we have um, very poor social provisions for people on low wages. So in other jurisdictions, the gap between the minimum wage and the living wage is a lot less, because they invest in social programs or more equitable tax system to ensure that low-wage workers' expenses are reduced. So it would be a bit of both that we would be advocating, that more people take up the living wage. But obviously the living wage isn't going to be attainable for every business. It's primarily probably small businesses. Um, but there's no reason why we can't reduce people's expenses. For example, if we had a properly publicly funded childcare system um, at $10 a day, the living wage would be reduced by $3, a little over $3, because childcare is one of the most expensive items. In a place like Vancouver, uh, we see the living wage um, and the minimum wage um, really out of whack um, for what it takes to uh, provide for uh, yourself and a family um, in this region. Um, you mentioned social programs. How, to what extent can municipalities actually um, affect um, change and provide um, an environment for uh more income security um, and a reduction in poverty at that local level. Much of this minimum wage has to do with provincial legislation, um, uh, daycare um, primarily seen as something uh, that's uh, the a province's responsibility or the federal government. Um, so we see, you know, a significant um, 
amount of poverty at the local level, but it seems that local governments are very limited in what, in what they can do. Would that be a, a correct well, assessment? Well, they aren't, they aren't. Yeah. Um, local governments, especially the larger ones like Surrey, Burnaby, Vancouver, etc., spend a huge amount of money on contracts. Um, I think it could be half a billion um, in some of them, and they actually spend more on contracted labour than they do on directly employed labour. Um, so they have a large economic footprint, and obviously not all those contracts would be paid a living wage. So if they commit to be pass a living wage policy, as has been done in New Westminster, um, they can hugely affect that. Also, the private sector has a huge role to play because large economic actors like banks, um, like um, financial institutions, etc., who aren't traditionally seen as low-wage employers, actually, again, contract out a lot of services in the low-wage uh, sphere. And they, too, can make sure that those are paid a living wage, which actually creates a competitive advantage for uh, contractors and employers who pay a living wage. In fact, a place like UBC um, would be a very interesting example of where that can be uh, changed. I would imagine a lot of the people who clean student residences, who provide security um, and catering, etc., aren't paid a living wage. Um, However, UBC is a large institution with a, a large budget, um, and it wouldn't cost a huge amount of their budget to bring these people up to the living wage. Yeah, although I'd mentioned, though, um, many of the uh, UBC uh, custodial and uh, other service workers are unionized here um, because, you know, in some respect, it is a public um, institution. So um, I, I, I certainly see some differences um, on the on the UBC campus, to as opposed to maybe hospitality workers who are working in hotels um, are not in that same environment, and that leads me to a question: What incentives do do corporations and, and large businesses who financially could afford to pay their workers more and still uh, carry a very healthy bottom line forward? What's their incentive? Is it is it does it come down to a moral imperative or a social justice imperative, which? I would argue we don't necessarily see in the private sector. Um, well, the interesting thing about this is this has been going on outside Canada for a number of years, and there's a, a number of large profit-making corporations who become living wage employers and have actually empirically studied what the business case has been for this and found it's quite good business case. Um, what employers um, find is often people on low wages are the first people that their clients or consumers meet. If you don't pay them properly, um, they're going to be sicker more and they're going to be less incentivized. And that's not a good, what would I say, first protocol that you want a consumer to meet. Um, so when they've started paying the living wage, they've found productivity increases, they've found sick costs have reduced, they've found turnover costs because if people are in a low-wage job, they're going to be not very committed to the organization and be looking for uh, a new job as soon as they can get and they've also found on um, a marketing point of view that it fits in with the public image that a corporation is trying to perform. Because as you mentioned, corporations aren't in the business of social justice, but they're in the business of protecting their brand. And brands don't like to be associated with poverty. <laughs> um, so there's a huge incentive for corporations um, to pay for this. Also, a lot of business organizations are starting to cop on that things like the huge expense it takes to bring up a family is actually bad for business and it's anti-competitive. Um, corporations coming in to places like Vancouver, um, low wages, 
isn't really top of their agenda because they're mostly looking to have well-educated, high-end jobs. Um, and if a large percentage of our uh, uh, employment sector is in low-wage jobs, there's not that base for an educated workforce. And also, if it's too expensive for a family to live here, um, they'll go to a place where it's less expensive and they do have a, um, a wider uh, array of the population who are educated to uh, take from. I want to ask you, has any of the research um, looked at uh, union density um, in a region like uh, the greater Vancouver um, region um, and union density and, and the relationship between wages? Um, it has, yeah. The union density is about 30%. But mm-hmm. just because you're in a union doesn't mean you'll be paid a living wage. In fact, um, take, for example, the hospital employees union. They were paid a living wage um, until our current government uh, contracted out their services and their wages were cut in half. Um, so just because somebody is from a union doesn't necessarily pay their living wage. I, I think it was interesting that you mentioned that a lot of the workers here are unionised. Um, but the average wage for a lot of service sectors is well below uh, mm. a, uh, a living wage. That's, so, a, that's a great point. So just because people view unionised as people are sorted, um, but really it only brings people up to what should be, you know, a quite poor wage. A basic level. Whereas people who aren't unionised are on crazy low wages. The thing people don't consider is they see it as, oh, well, we're, we're, we're cutting back costs. In fact, you're actually transferring costs, and you're transferring costs onto the sector of society which is least able to pay for it, and then us as a society get to pay for it in turn in terms of um, social costs and economic costs down the line in terms of lower educational attainment, paying for social programs, paying for policing costs, paying for all those type of things. Um, so it's, it's, it's really um, a false economy. It actually is um, a quite, um, what would I say, uneconomic way to invest our money. We spend nine billion a year in the province paying for poverty in terms of lost investment, lost uh, productivity, and in terms of paying for social uh, programs. But it would cost us only three to four billion to be able to invest in programs that would stop people getting into poverty in the first place. Does poverty, though, largely, um, is it largely something that the middle class is increasingly paying for? Um, and, and I think we see this with how um, how inequality has grown over the last 30, 40 years. Um, you, you make a great case that it's better for, for society if we reduce poverty, but um, at the top, uh, top levels, income uh, levels, um, with the way things um, have have evolved um, in terms of tax policy and and um, uh, the rise of neoliberalism at every at every level, um, is it largely being something that the middle poverty is something the middle class is paying the cost for, and um, and even the wealthiest are are not necessarily interested in in reducing inequality because they're still they're still doing enormously well. <laughs> Well, obviously the wealthy aren't that interested because they're winning from the system, but the the wealthy are quite a small minority in society. Um, As you said, the middle class are still with an ideology from the 50s that if I just keep my head down, get my third-level education, I'll get a good life, which isn't true anymore. Um, And the reality for a lot of middle-class people is they're a paycheck away from poverty themselves. Um, What hasn't happened is that people haven't created a new framework in which to view this. 
the ideology that we have is to keep your head down and to get above the ladder so you don't end up in poverty rather than creating a situation that reduces your chances of getting into poverty. And that was my interview with Michael McCarthy Flynn, um, the Living Wages for Families campaign organizer. And that research is conducted uh, through First Call, um, the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives, um, among uh, support with uh, from another for a, a whole number of different partners. Um, so. Unfortunately, I had a longer interview, and uh, for that, um, I'm going to have that posted on the show's website, thecityfm.wordpress.com. Again, thecityfm.wordpress.com for that full-length interview, as well as the podcast for this show, um, which is posted uh, momentarily, will be posted momentarily after the live show. So we're going to end with a track um, from The Shins, and... um, Again, content for the show is on the website. Uh, you can also find a link to this podcast as well as other podcasts at citr.ca. And you can find the Twitter on, you can find the city on Twitter at the city on CITR, all one word. And you can also find the city on Facebook at the city on CITR as well. Um, so in addition to that, um, just a preview for next week's um, edition of The City. Um, we'll be having uh, a full-length uh, discussion uh, with Noah Quastel, a PhD um, candidate within the UBC Geography Department. And we're going to be talking about development, ecological, gentrifi- ecological gentrification, um, and many of the issues um, that we see emerging out of discourses of sustainability and livability and the impact they have um, on development, redevelopment in the city, um, and lower income uh, groups um, living within the city of Vancouver and pressures um, on social upgrading uh, across neighborhoods in the city. And so how this language is often uh, used to mobilize um, a number of forces which uh, essentially gentrify and displace people from lower, what are lower income neighborhoods um, to make them um, wealthier, higher in neighborhoods and the language of sustainability and how that plays into that. So again, that's on next week's um, edition of The City. And again, uh, welcome to uh, listeners um, tuning in um, on CJSF 90.1 FM broadcasting uh, from Burnaby Mountain. Um, so pleased to be syndicated and honored to be um, on CJSF, um, a wonderful campus and community radio partner to CITR, um, my home station. So again, um, thanks so much for tuning in. And um, if you have comments or feedback, thecity.citr at gmail.com is the place uh, you can reach me. So here's a final track um, and enjoy the rest of uh, your evening. Um, Thanks for listening and look forward uh, to talking more about um, the city next week.